Hello, and welcome to your fully automated data science system. Please take a look at the range of questions and potential data science problems you and I could tackle today. You can flip through the images below that describe various tasks we can pursue, given the data I have on hand. I've also selected these tasks for you based on your past history, your industry, and questions that data scientists like you have explored. Be sure to rate my recommendations so we can continue to develop a productive and enjoyable automated machine learning relationship. Are you ready to start your data science projects that way? Interacting with a fully automated machine learning system that knows you and your data well enough to know what you might like to work on today? Welcome to Data Science Mixer, a podcast featuring top experts in lively and informative conversations that will change the way you do data science. I'm Susan Curry Civic, Senior Data Science Journalist for the Alteryx Community. For today's episode, I talked with Kalyan Viramuchnini, who is helping map out and build the future of automated machine learning systems. We walked through some of the exciting potential and challenges of building AutoML systems that can do a lot more than build and evaluate models. In fact, they can do it all. We're talking about AutoML systems that can also formulate problems, clean and visualize data, build meaningful training and test sets, construct features, communicate results, and even make recommendations. Wow. And you might be surprised to hear that kind of comprehensive AutoML, it's not that far away. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you and get you wondering and maybe dreaming about these systems too. Let's meet Kalyan. Thank you for having me. I'm Kalyan Veramachnini. I'm a research faculty in the computer science department at MIT. And I lead a group called Data to AI in MIT. And I also joined Alteryx as a fellow two years ago. And I work with the Innovation Labs team very closely at Alteryx. Awesome. Fantastic. And would you mind sharing with us as well which pronouns you use? Him, he, is. Okay, great. Thank you. And as you may know, on Data Science Mixer, we often try to have a special beverage or a snack or something while we're chatting. So do you happen to have anything there with you today? I have coffee. I love Yay. coffee. So Yes. Any kind of special coffee or just straight up the, the hard stuff? Um, straight up regular <laughs> black um, from Starbucks. That's all I have all the time. Excellent. Yes. Same here. French roast always. Yep. Just black first thing in the morning. So I've actually moved on to my second round of caffeine and I'm now having some double bergamot Earl Grey. So that's my my second dose of caffeine every day. Awesome. Great. Well, you know, I, there's so many different things that we could talk about. You've worked on so many different projects in your research and your different collaborations. But, you know, one thing that I thought was especially interesting that has come up recently is a paper that you recently published uh, with co-authors in ACM computing surveys, where you talk about the development of AutoML tools. And this is a really neat, deep, comprehensive look at AutoML. And I think it's super interesting because it really lays out a, a taxonomy for thinking about those tools and that will really, I think, help people think about the future of how AutoML is gonna develop. So as we're thinking about moving toward a completely automated machine learning system, that kind of taxonomy I could see being very useful. So the paper was super thought-provoking and very readable, which is, you know, for any academic paper is, is a major accomplishment. So yay. And, uh, you know, we'll put a link in the show notes to the published and preprint versions so folks can check it out as well. 
But if we could, I, I would love to just walk through some of the concepts in the paper and talk through uh, what you're seeing in the, the future of AutoML. And maybe a good place to start is just kind of with the a simple question, or maybe it's not a very simple question, which is, for you, what is AutoML exactly, um, as you would define it? And, and what motivated you to, to work on this paper, to, to write about it and explore it so deeply? Oh, thank you for that question. I think uh, it is hard to define AutoML because that definition has been evolving over time. What has not evolved is the mission, uh, which is how we can, how can we make more people in the society use ML? machine learning and data to optimize operations or make things more efficient, make things more equitable, make things more accessible or available. You know, these range from a lot of commercial applications to a lot of societal applications. So making that, making society able to use auto ML mm -hmm. uh, is the sole purpose. But what we started considering is what part of uh, that process that we would like to automate like the machine learning solution development has evolved over a decade. So in this paper, we started, you know, going through our journey in 2010, when we realized that there, there's an immense need in the society to use machine learning, but everybody's stymied uh, from being able to use it because a lot of that was, you know, research work or buried in papers or a lot of mathematics. And so at that time, we said, okay, could we automate some parts of it? Could we build tools, essentially, to enable people to use a lot of the research and mathematics that's in the labs or research settings? And then we, you know, over five years, by we, I mean a larger research community, including my group and a lot of folks that I work with, try to automate a lot of, you know, things and try to provide tools and, and the ability for people to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, Python became a very popular language among data scientists and machine sure. learning folks. So we started building all the tools in Python. And lo and behold, in 2015, 2016, we had almost tools to automate every part of machine learning, process machine learning solution development, if you will. Mm -hmm. So process ranging from how do you prepare data, how do you extract features, out of the data, which features are just, you know, historically, as my dad would say, variable. Now you're calling them features. <laughs> so they're just variables that describe what's going on, a phenomena. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you automatically do that without having to write a lot of software? Uh, how do you explore different machine learning models? How do you tune them? The machine learning models have a lot of hyperparameters that control its behavior or that control how it interacts with data. So how do you tune them to maximize its uh, accuracy or performance. So there's so many tools that we produced by the time it was 2015-16 timeframe. And then so many more were in the pipeline at that time. So the AutoML definition startup, you know, originally it was just about modeling and then it expanded to data preparation, feature engineering, and then the whole sort of pipeline, end-to-end -end pipeline of machine learning solution development for a problem. And then we said, okay, so now we have all the tools so it should be very easy for anyone to start using machine learning, right? So any data scientists or any domain expert, experts that have very sort of minimal software engineering experience or, or had software engineering experience, but now focused on different things in their career. <laughs> and lo and behold, we found that it's still not possible. <laughs> it's still hard. And I think we would have only figured that out if we you know, did actually make all those tools and say, okay, we took care of all the problems that we thought were the bottlenecks. Hmm. Uh, so 
from 2016 onwards, we started uncovering a whole set of new problems when you interact with domain experts. Interesting. And I know that's another term that you spend a little bit of time on in the paper as well, this idea of what is exactly a domain expert. So what does that term mean in, in your system of thinking about AutoML? That's actually a very good question too, because, you know, I was in a meeting at, at one of the DARPA programs where, you know, the program's goal was to the same mission, increase usage of machine learning. And all of us were like trying to say, well, we want to build this tool for the domain expert. We want to build this tool for domain expert. And there was a whole bunch of people ranging from machine learning, applied machine learning, HCI, database. It's a, a, mm -hmm. a lot of my peers and colleagues. And then at some point I popped in, I said, what do you mean by domain expert? And somebody said, oh, I mean the machine learning folks. Oh, and then yeah. I asked someone else, what do you mean by domain expert? They said, well, we mean somebody else. We mean the researchers. So everybody had a different definition. Mm. Yeah. So ultimately we concluded that, at least I concluded, and I want to sort of make sure that that's what we are talking about, is that a domain expert is somebody that is working the domain whose problem we are trying to solve using machine learning. Yeah. So if you're talking about sales and marketing, they are experts in sales and it's their problem that we are trying to solve. They are trying to solve their problem. Uh, so that's what we mean by domain experts. So we have right now we, uh, in my group, we interact with operators that operate satellites and monitor them hmm. or um, folks that look at time series signals from wind farms and continuously monitor them and try to optimize operations. So those are the domain experts. They're, they're sort of embedded in that domain and they care about that domain a lot. And so it's to, it's, it's them we are trying to serve right. uh, through the making machine learning easy to use concepts. That, that's our audience. That's our goal. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So in the paper, thinking about these domain experts and putting these tools in their hands, you you and your co-authors talk about these seven levels of AutoML and the various progression that we've seen as we've moved towards sort of that highest level, which would be a fully automated end-to-end -end solution for handling the entire machine learning process. So maybe you could give us, um, don't feel obligated to go through every single level, but maybe you could give us kind of the overview of why that set of levels came about and how you thought of thought about it as a uh, sort of a thinking tool for organizing the tools that are currently available. Yeah, I think we when we started looking, when we started expanding this definition, we started uncovering more problems uh, that were that were not making machine learning easy to use. Uh, even after having all these toolings, we started to realize, well, there's a lot of other things beyond the scope what we originally defined or we went after. And then it automatically fell in place saying that there's other tools that need to be developed. There's other automation that needs to be done. And so that's led, that led to those seven levels mm -hmm. that we, that we defined in the paper. And one of the big things that we started to identify were two bottlenecks and in the whole process, even after having all the tooling to do the machine learning model development, the first bottleneck was how does one translate a business problem into a machine learning task? That itself was interaction between an applied machine learning engineer mm -hmm. or a data scientist and the domain expert. So it was a lot of back and forth and it involved figuring out, do we have data for this? Do we not have data for this? But also, you know, the problem at the business level comes up something like, well, we are spending too much on, you know, going back and forth, which I'm just 
giving an example, going sure. in back and forth mm -hmm. between the wind farm trying to replace this part. Right. Well, then you would have to translate that in, into, well, should we try to predict in advance which parts are going to fail? So that translation is coming from a lot of back and forth between the data scientists and domain experts. So we thought about like, is that process even like, can we take that bottleneck away? Is there any way we can create tooling to help with that? Can we automate that? It turned out that, you know, we had a completely incorrect way of looking at automation. Hmm. We always thought of automation as just a tool that we can provide. And then suddenly we will be able to replace uh, <laughs> a process that was done by people mm -hmm. in this case. It turned out that automation can only enable, it's an enabler, not a replacement. So we created a tool called ComposeML. It's actually open source and it's with Altrix Innovation Labs as well. And in that tool, we allow people to specify machine learning tasks mm -hmm. and interact with the data and figure out, can the data do something uh, on that task, mm -hmm. right? Is there, is there a possibility? Do we have enough training examples? Do we have you know, there's a number of questions one can ask. Yeah. And that sort of takes care of some level of reduces some bottleneck in that back and forth. It doesn't completely eliminate it, but it reduces some bottleneck in that. Then we thought about the next part where we said, hey, if we can look at the data and automatically synthesize prediction problems or machine learning tasks, can we can we take those synthesized machine learning tasks back to the domain experts and say, could this help in some business problem right. uh, or not? So it's a very, it's, it's flipping the question. Instead of them coming to us with a business problem and then I, us trying to map, can we just show them a lot of prediction tasks or machine learning tasks that we could solve using the data? And can we ask them, is this useful? Could you think you can use this particular prediction task if we were to build a model for this? So that was sort of level six or level, level seven automation. So as we started going up and up and up towards um, higher levels, it became a lot more about making that interaction more efficient. Mm. So providing tools and creating tools to make those interactions more efficient. If you go lower and lower we were tr uh, in the level, you start taking off the tasks that were traditionally done by people manually right. uh, into something that could be now done automatic automatically with software. So that was the whole sort of rationale coming up with seven levels and the dividing what we have uh, already available into those levels and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I thought some of the issues that came up in the paper around problem formulation, problem recommendation or task recommendation, and how that would be translated back and forth between the, the system and the human, I thought some of those challenges were especially interesting. Could you talk about some of those issues and some of the things that you've already developed to try to address those problems? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one big one big interesting observation that my group had a couple of years ago was if you look at the data coming up with a prediction task or a machine learning task is very mechanical. Hmm. That's how we automate it. So we programmatically can describe some constructs and you know, create a language. We even call that prediction task language. And, and so we can create a lot of prediction problems or machine tasks that machine learning modeling can solve. But then it turned out that language itself is very, it's very programmatic language or a mathematical language. So then we had to translate that into a natural language expression hmm. so that it can interface with the domain experts that may not be 
you know, understanding what we are writing in software or, you know, it's not, you can't present them the coded language. So that itself led to a lot of work in terms of like, how do we express these problems? So now we have a machine learning task, but can we express this problem as a natural language in, in natural language so that it's presentable? And that led to a little bit of research and, you know, it was a little bit of a problem to solve that, but sure. we were able to get over that with, with my team. I think the second bigger problem was, and this is true for any automation in this area in AutoML, that as you automate a process, in this case, generation of those prediction problem, you end up with thousands of hmm. uh, solutions yeah. or thousands yeah. of things that could pop up. So we can't overwhelm the domain expert. Hey, is this useful? Is this useful? Is this useful? Thousands of possibilities. Um, thousands of possibilities. So then it's like, how do we make it more interactive? So we show a problem, say, we show a machine learning task and say, hey, we can solve this using the data. We can predict <laughs> this. Can you tell us if this is useful or not? And if they give us feedback, then we have to take that feedback and figure out what next to recommend. If they say this is not good, thumbs up, thumbs down, we can go back and figure out what next to recommend or what next to show. Because we can't just show thousands of them, right. thousand problems to them. Then other, other thing we realized is that even within domain experts with the same data set, everyone is coming from dif from different area, if you will, right. mm -hmm. or a different goal. Sure. Right. So the same data, same domain, uh, one expert one wants to optimize the operations. One expert may try to optimize the power generation of the turbine. Another expert wants to understand sort of the control settings, how they are influencing. So everybody has slightly different goals. It's the same domain and same data but slightly different goals. So when you build a recommendation system, it's not something that, you know, it will work for everyone. Right. So it has right. to be interactive. So it's like your movies, like all of us <laughs> go to thinking. Netflix, but we have slightly <laughs> different, you know, preference as to what we, what we are looking for. And that's one of the challenges. So those two challenges we haven't solved. They're still hmm. open challenges. We haven't been able to fully solve them yet. That's interesting though. And it's, it's really exciting to kind of imagine interacting with your data in the form of clicking through task options, you know, or have, having some sort of little tile like a Netflix movie cover image you know, where you could <laughs> see different possibilities um, and things that I would imagine, too, that that would potentially surface things that people wouldn't think of themselves as well, that, you know, that they wouldn't necessarily have recognized on their own in their data that these possibilities existed, which is kind of cool to think about. Exactly. I think to give you one concrete example, mm -hmm. if you take sort of doctor appointments and scheduling data, the data that comes from the doctor's scheduling, mm -hmm. um, so patients scheduled visits and they do show up at the visit and so on and so forth. One prediction task could be we can predict for a particular appointment whether someone will show or not. Oh, wow. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's one task that we can generate. The other task from the same data we can generate in a day of eight appointments or, you know, 10 appointments, how many we think will be no-show? So it's very slightly different problem and it can lead to different um, goals and different uses, right? Sure. So in the first one, we are exactly telling which appointment will be a no-show. In the second one, we are saying what percentage of the appointments will be a no-show. We are not telling you which one, mm -hmm. but we are telling you what percentage of the time, uh, uh, percentage of the appointments will be a no-show. 
That's so interesting. And I, I think in the paper as well, there's mention of incorporating business outcomes as a potential factor in that recommendation system. And I imagine those would differ too based on the role of the person who's using it. Is that kind of the idea? Exactly. I think it also, based on the role, they may decide to do something different with the prediction task, as well as based on their objectives. And they, these also give them a hint as to what action they could take. So in the example right. I was giving you, if it's if you're predicting exactly what appointment is not going to know show, they can take an action of sending reminders mm -hmm. or sending try you know, trying to fix that or try to double book it, if you will, right? So that the slot does get used by someone else who's in need. Right. Um if you give what percentage of the appointments will be a no show, that's you can solve different kinds of problems with it. So you can decide, you know, maybe there's some other resources that you would like to pre-order or pre, you know, you only want to order sort of eight uh, things instead of 10 for that day, because you know that only eight will show up. Uh, I'll just give you an example, maybe coffee. You only want to order <laughs> eight cups of coffee for your patients when they show up, right, instead of ordering 10. So different sort of problem prediction tasks, there's different experts and a different reason for them. And they also lead to different actions. Right. So what we imagine if we solve this problem of, of being able to recommend and show prediction tasks and say, we can solve this, we can solve this. We imagine that it will trigger a lot of thinking in domain experts sort of brain. Mm -hmm. And they will start thinking about, huh, I could use this to solve this other problem. So yeah. some problems that they haven't even thought of matching to the data, they will be able to try to address that. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm still thinking about having my doctor sign up for this. They can have coffee waiting for me. I'm, I'm obsessed with that now. <laughs> I like this idea. Always coffee is a great example. Um, so the other end of the process then, and I think we've we've been alluding to this a little bit already, but the, the interpretation of the results that are generated, um, what does that look like in a fully automated system? Because I'm sure some folks listening to this right now will be like, well, we still need the people to understand what to do with all these results. So what would that, what form would that take or how would that be interpreted? I think at the other end, once the machine learning model does produce an output, a prediction or an insight or something of that sort, when it produces an output, we also started to recognize that a lot of those outputs will become part of a workflow hmm. or a process that domain experts already have. So it's an augmented input to their decision-making. And as a result, we realized, okay, so the first question obviously was, you know, how did you come up with this prediction? How did the model come up with this prediction? So that was solved by a lot of tooling now available in explainable AI. Right, right. Um, yeah. So people started to figure out how to how to backtrack how the model came about that decision and how to present that visually. Mm -hmm. But we started to realize even there's more deeper questions sure. that the experts are asking. They're not necessarily concerned about how exactly the model did it. I think they're asking more about, so not the mathematical process in which the model did it. I think they have this sort of like, well, I think about it this way. Why are you differing with my thinking? So instead of telling them this is the pathway the model took or the decision pathway the model took, you have to understand where their disagreement could be coming from. What right. are the concerns that they have? And that part is like, we don't have tooling for that yet. Mm. So that would be truly an interactive system where a domain expert is, is sort of asking, well, in past for this particular patient or for this particular you know turbine, 
this is how things had happened. <laughs> so why is it that you're giving me a different result? So trying to figure out where their lack of trust, where their questions are coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't yet have tooling for that. So we have just about started to work on that sort of tooling. Interesting. And I know a number of times in the paper you mentioned, and you and your co-authors mentioned, the, the need for a lot of human-computer interaction understanding around these issues. And because it, it seems like the question that you just raised is really kind of a, a psychological paradigm of thinking kind of question. You know, that people have one way of thinking about something. This is to present something else. How do you reconcile those two things with the user interface? That, that seems like a very tricky thing. <laughs> it is. It is. And it is very tricky and it changes from domain to domain. So what works in one domain may not work in another domain. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think a lot of um, domain-specific understanding and being able to configure um, yeah. these explanation tools so that it works with that domain will be very important. I think the other, one of, one of my peers and colleagues, they, they once brought this up to me, saying that in their domain, the domain that they were working with, it matters a lot whether you show the prediction first mm. before the person has in their workflow put in some comments about some case that they're evaluating or doing some work on, mm. uh, versus whether you put the prediction after they write those notes. So either before or after. Because if you put before, it has the sort of an anchoring effect, so it can bias their their decision making. If you put it after, it can create the sort of disagreement. So there's a lot of, as you said, psychological factors, and and it and they change from domain to domain. In some domains, they don't show up. In some domains, they do do show up. So there's a lot of uh, work still needs to be done there. Yeah, all kinds of possibilities. So a couple of broader questions, just thinking about the. Uh, realization of all of these big ideas, what's the timeline here? What are, what are we looking at for potentially <laughs> achieving a level six auto ML system in, in your estimation? And I know that's a, a huge hypothetical question. <laughs> we will hold you to it. I think the, the, the level six automation or level seven automation where we are able to help domain experts formulate machine learning tasks. I would say within two to three years, we should be there. Oh. So we are not that far away from it. We should be able to make that more interactive and we should be able to do that. So that's where, you know, to reiterate, it's where, you know, we show them machine learning tasks that the system can solve and they, they map them to the business problems or they ask for or give us feedback, thumbs up or thumbs down. Right. So that is two or three years away. I don't think we will take that much time. We'll start seeing even commercial products doing that. Uh, they will have different names ranging from auto KPI mm. generators mm -hmm. so that people can use those KPI generators and present it to them and they can you know, say, oh, I would like to predict this KPI or things like that or auto insights. They'll be have, having different names. We will start seeing commercial products. The other end of it, where we try to help them post predictions, the so model is there, it's deployed, it's producing prediction. Mm -hmm. And we want to enable them to make decisions and augment those in their workflows. That is a little farther out. Mm -hmm. I think there's still a little bit more work to be done. We can do case by case. So you can take sales and marketing or a sales lead generation problem or a lead scoring problem. So you can solve for that one. So we can do case by case. And that will get us pretty far. But I think creating a, a sort of a cohesive general purpose way of enabling any sort of augmented decision making where augmentation is coming from machine learning, in my opinion, it's a little 
uh, farther away, maybe four or five years. No, still not that far. <laughs> still not that far. Still in my lifetime. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Very <laughs> cool. And the other thing that I wondered about as I was reading about this was, you know, we talk a lot about getting people data skills and getting people data literate. So what level of data literacy do you expect people to need to be able to work with a more automated ML system? I mean, obviously it depends on the level of automation, but, you know, what are your hopes or, or thoughts as far as what people need to know to make the most of this kind of system and to use it effectively? One of the big things that I also learned over time is that at least, at least sitting in an ivory tower, I, I mean... <laughs> The companies aside, but in people who are in academia, they have a very binary definition. Mm. Well, we people who they don't know software or they know software. They don't know machine learning or they know machine learning. They don't know data or they know data. And I realize that's completely a fallacy mm. or I don't know if that's the right word, but it's <laughs> a wrong thing to think about sure. it. Um, I think the more important thing to think about is where their focus is and how much time do they have? Mm. So those are the two things. So for example, a domain expert working in wind turbines, their focus is turbines. Mm -hmm. So assuming that they don't know or they will be not knowing enough about data or or software or machine learning is incorrect. They probably can and they probably can learn even faster. So I think so what I realized is to answer your question, maybe I took a different tangent no, here. Great. But great. to answer your question, the domain experts who's who we are trying to serve will be very data literate. It's it's what we do is we we wrap concepts around data, and then try to tell them that's what they should learn. Hmm. And I don't think that's the right way to do things. So, for example, we create these primary keys, foreign keys. Oh, great! They help us in processing the data, storing the data, and do that. But then we should not expect them to learn that. <laughs> that's not that's not what their job is, or should not even focus their automation tools to enable them to learn that because that's not their goal. They may find it interesting at this point of time, but, you know, at the end of the day, their goal and their focus is, rightfully so, solve the problem they have at hand, right. which is like maximize the efficiency of the turbines or, you know, whatever they're working on. Mm -hmm. So in general, I think the, the real question for us is to abstract away all the concepts that we created for computational purposes, processing purposes, storage purposes, and then take them away and meet them where they are. And they are extremely data literate, if you if you mm -hmm. ask me. In mm -hmm. fact, when it comes to their data, they're more literate than than we are. Yeah. I yeah. think the bigger struggle has been that for us, when we go from domain to domain as an applied data scientist or an applied machine learning, we have no idea what their data set is. And half the times we keep asking them, so what is the foreign key here? What is the primary <laughs> key here? And then they are like, what does that mean? <laughs> what, what, what are you asking? And so I think that's where we, we would have to meet them. We have to meet them where they are. It's interesting because I think it's a, you know, taking away the jargon, taking away the, the some of the complex, well, taking away the jargon, at least, not taking away the complexity, but it, it's a much more egalitarian view of machine learning, it feels like. And I wonder what your kind of vision is of if these tools are made readily available, you know, do you see major change as a result? Or, I mean, that's that's really kind of a grandiose question, but I wonder what you think about sort of the larger potential of making these tools more widely available and the potential impact that could have on people's work in business and in, in other areas? 
I think with right tooling, a lot of people will not be scared of machine learning or scared of using machine learning. These are, you know, I saw recently an example from one of the peers at Altrix, actually, where they were trying to teach imputation, uh, but without using the word imputation. <laughs> so by giving an example and saying that, okay, this is one part of the data piece is missing. And how would you like, what would be the right answer for it? And, you know, in giving the answer, what the person naturally did was imputation. Mm, right. So if, if the tools have right interfaces and we create the right level of abstraction, mm -hmm. uh, I do see that a lot of people will be able to do machine learning without having to worry about it or jargon or you know, just understanding it much more directly as, as opposed to us trying to teach them a lot of concepts of machine learning, which is good, but not necessarily at the end of the day, they're focused. Sure, sure. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So we have a question that we always ask on the podcast, and I'll ask it to you now. This is our alternative hypothesis segment. And the question is, what is something that people often think is true about data science or being a data scientist, but that you in your experience have found to be false? <laughs> do, you, do you want the controversial answer? <laughs> of course. <laughs> to that, I'll give an answer, but maybe it's too late. Uh, it's already known and it's already accepted, mm -hmm. which is your know, deep learning will solve all the problems. Oh. Mm -hmm. Uh, in data science, and that turned out to be completely false. <laughs> uh, and to give you a more concrete example, when I talk about time series mm -hmm. forecasting or time series prediction, and, you know, we had high expectations from deep learning, and they haven't turned out that way at all. Uh, deep learning has worked great for computer vision, but for time series, it hasn't worked that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad is an economist. So I have some fun conversations with him oh, and yeah. I try to avoid the co these conversations, but we end up someplace <laughs> because at some point he asks me, what are you working uh -oh. on? And if I say time series, he says, well, that's what I was working before you were born. <laughs> we economists have developed methods. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, even before you were born. <laughs> and then I said, well, we use neural networks. And, and, and he asks, uh, so how are they working out? <laughs> and I haven't have... <laughs> I haven't had a solid answer to, for him <laughs> compared to the old age-old statistical models for mm. time series analysis. Right, yeah. Um, so I think that's a big uh, fallacy that uh, deep learning will be able to solve, but maybe now everybody realizes already. Well, if, if they haven't, then this will bring them some hard truth here. So <laughs> we'll see what kind of comments we get on the podcast. No, that's great. And and I love the uh, the family relationship there and getting to talk about time series at the dinner table. That's awesome. Well, Kayan, thank you again for joining us on Data Science Mixer. It's been really fascinating to hear about the current state and the potential future of AutoML and really excited to see what you and your team will do next. So thanks again. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for listening to our Data Science Mixer chat with Kalyan Viramashanini. Join us on the Alteryx community for this week's cocktail conversation to share your thoughts. What do you want to see in the future of AutoML? Are you excited by the fully automated level six kind of system that Kalyan describes? Are there particular tasks you would really, really like to have automated? Or maybe some you want to hang on to for yourself? Share your thoughts and ideas by leaving a comment directly on the episode page at community.alteryx.com slash podcast 
or post on social media with the hashtag data science mixer and tag Alteryx. Cheers.